Amen. And please do turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we began an exposition of the book of Romans last week. We'll continue on this week. Uh, we could have called the sermon um, Introduction to Romans Part 2, but, uh, and it is. That's exactly what it is, is Introduction to Romans Part 2. But I've decided to call it The Righteousness of God. And you'll see why as we work our way through the passage here today. So we have some themes that are in the book of Romans in this introduction. And I've listed them there for you on your outline. And, and you can see them there. I just shoved my outline away someplace. And now I don't Oh, Here it is. Very good. Thought I lost my outline. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Themes in, in the book of Romans that are actually specifically addressed in these first 17 verses. Now we see the Trinity. We see the Resurrection. We see the gospel, we see salvation, we see the righteousness of God, and we see faith by justification. You know, justification by faith alone. And um, we could obviously send, spend many, many messages just on that particular subject, and uh, we would not exhaust it. But I'm not going to do that, and the reason I'm going fairly quickly here in the introduction is because it is an introduction. These are the things we're going to see throughout the book along with other important doctrines, too. So let's just read uh, the first seven verses together that we looked at last week. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that was Paul's uh, authentication. He uses the Old Testament again and again and again to prove that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the one that the scriptures looked to. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and of course that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So you see, Paul does not try to prove the Trinity. Paul asserts the Trinity. And the resurrection, of course, is the central theme of the gospel. Now, you need the death before you can have the resurrection. It all goes together, the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Christ. As we continue on, verse 5, Through him we talking about himself and those with him, have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And so that's what we looked at last week. And uh, we pick up there from here. But um, as we say, as we work our way through, uh, we're going to see... Uh, a number of other themes as we go. So, starting in verse number 7, the end. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's favorite um, way of speaking, favorite way of talking, favorite way of opening, and uh, we'll close with that verse today as a way, by way of benediction. So then he says in verse 8, new material, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, that your faith is spoken of throughout all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing 
I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you as also among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, that was a lot. Let me just ask a question before we go, because I don't want to be distracted. Am I hearing fans or am I hearing rain? <laughs> okay, I thought so. <laughs> now we all know. <laughs> okay, very good. So, we find, first of all, Paul's motivation. Paul's motivation. And it wasn't, uh, well, you know, wasn't that long ago that um, communication was difficult. I was going to say a, a whole a lot about that, but I think I'll just sum it up by saying this. Um, really, the telegraph came into the world and changed things forever. And before that, of course, the printing press had come into the world and changed things forever. All of a sudden, people were now able to, to gain knowledge that they were never able to have before. People had very few handwritten copies of things, but the printing press made it available and as it progressed, more and more available for people to have knowledge. And then the Telegraph did something very interesting. I was looking it up, and let me just quote um, a work that I read about that. It said, it was demonstrated, the Telegraph was demonstrated to work in 1838. And soon Telegraph wires were strung far and wide. In fact, in 1861, the New York Times wrote, now listen to this quote, you know, it really shows how far communication has come in such a short period of time. The New York Times wrote in 1861, the message of President Lincoln was telegraphed yesterday to all parts of the loyal states. The message contained 7,578 words and was all received in this city in the space of one hour and 32 minutes by telegraph, a feat unparalleled in the old or new world. So there you go. So the next time you fire up your computer and you get mad because of 10 seconds later it still hasn't fired up yet, you know. <laughs> the telegraph guys, they were thrilled at an, at an hour and 32 minutes. <laughs> so there you go. And of course there's the telephone. And I started thinking about the telephone and, and what it meant and, and how expensive it used to be and how expensive it still is because of cell phones, you know. And I used to call Becky on the phone from my dorm room, and I had to save my quarters. And I, I can't remember how much it cost, but I think it was like $5 for 20 minutes. And uh, you say, well, that's not very much. And it, it is when you're making $2 an hour. <laughs> yeah, it is. So it was very expensive. And uh, they talked about the day that we would be able to have phones that you could actually see the person you're talking to. And you don't even think anything of that, do you? 
You know, that's, just, that's how communication is just continues and continues and continues. But you know, there's something we've lost, and uh, Paul used it here. What about that good, old-fashioned, handwritten letter? It may be a long, long time since you've received one of those. But um, really, what is more personable than not a computer-printed letter, but a good old handwritten letter from someone far away, letting them know they're thinking about you and care about you. That's, that's a good habit to have, by the way, to, to do that. So I know it's wonderful to, to have cell phones. We don't even use our cell phones hardly now except for texting. You know, and even texting is becoming obsolete. You know, these things. So, who knows what's going to come next and what we're going to have? But um, modes of communication. God chose the mode of communication, the letters that are being written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and sent to the churches, hand copied carefully, hand copied carefully, hand copied carefully, distributed, and uh, we still find fragments of them today. Uh, fragments as old as maybe even the first century small fragments of um, these epistles that were written probably have, it, have never found an autograph or the original copy. And uh, it's been speculated by theologians that maybe we never will because it could be all the autographs are gone because of man's perpetual uh, idolatry. If we ever did find an autograph, uh, then maybe people would be prone to worship it instead of worship the true living God. Speculation, but very possible there. Well, the point is communication has never been faster or easier than it is today. In Paul's day, communication was dangerous and difficult, but the difficulties would not stop Paul from his purpose. So first of all, verse eight, he commends the church in Rome. He said, I thank you. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And of course, that's an idiom. Um, it wouldn't be every single person, but it was widespread. It was well known that here was a church of faithful believers, a church that Paul himself had never been to. Now, that should have encouraged the Apostle Paul. I'm sure it did to think that it doesn't all rest on me. You know, the work of the gospel. I'm not alone. I've got workers, fellow workers. I've got Christians that are planting churches in various places. The churches are springing up everywhere. And here was a strong church in Rome. Uh, many of the people Paul knew that was there and had uh, Pauline influence on them, no doubt. But some of them, uh, he never knew. He'd only heard of them. So an exemplary church, a church well-known, a church full of Christians, some of them young in the faith. And that's a great thing to have young young Christians, new Christians, uh, whatever age they happen to be, but those that have recently come to Christ, you know, that, there's an excitement about them that's uh, infectious and uh, exciting for all the rest of us. And then it's so great to have the mature Christians, those that maybe aren't uh, necessarily elderly themselves, but have been in the Lord for many, many years, mature in the faith, helping to keep everyone grounded in the truth, and then I think, personally, I think a healthy church has literal babies and children and teens and adults and the elderly. And um, it's the family of God. And aren't families made up of all those things? So it's a great blessing when we have those things. 
You know, so there you go. You know, it was a church of faith. Their faith is spoken of throughout all the known world. And it was well known. And then the reason for Paul's desire to visit this church, and I just broke this up a little bit on your outline there. He says, for God is my witness. Now, I thought about this a lot this week. Uh, we need to be careful with our words. Jesus said, uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But we also have lawful oaths and vows. Uh, there are some that are so strict uh, that they will not uh, raise their hand in court and say, so help me God. They, they refuse to tell the truth, so help me God. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. I, I assert to you that that's the right thing to do. But there are those that won't do that. And... Um, well, Paul did speak this way, for God is my witness. We need to be careful if we're going to say something like that, that we really mean it. And we need to be careful not just to flippantly say it, but this shows us how earnest and honest the apostle was. God knows his heart. And God calls, he, actually he calls God to bear witness and to bear record in his heart and mind and conscience and motivation of what he's doing. For we know, even in that first century, that first century, even after the first 30 to 40 years after the time of Christ, there were those that were going around and preaching and doing so with bad motives, seeking to enrich themselves. And that continued on, continued, and guess when it stopped? Hadn't stopped yet. <laughs> it'll stop when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. That's when it'll stop. There have always been those that do that, seeking to enrich themselves or with money or power. Paul takes an oath. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Do you believe he prayed for them? I believe he prayed for them. Because he tells us that he did. And let's be those kind of people. You know, it's great to pray for one another. And let's do pray for one another. And let's remind each other that we're praying for one another. I'll tell you, and I know Pastor Ken would agree with this, and Pastor Mike would agree with this. It's encouraging when we hear that you're praying for us. We are praying for you. I assure you that we are. We are praying for you. But how encouraging to know that you're praying for us. In fact, if you want to have better sermons week after week after week, there's something you can do about that. Pray for the preacher. Pray for the preacher. It, it'll always make things better. If not better for the preacher, it'll make it better for you. Because now you're cognizant of the word. And you're cognizant of how important it is to be partakers of the word. And I know so many of you do that week after week. Thank you. And uh, my fellow elders, thank you too. Well, you can fool men, but you can't fool God. And God knows the innermost secrets of our heart. God knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. And you can fool people, but you'll never fool God. God is my witness, Paul says. And that's not an unusual thing for him to say. For in Romans 9.1... He says, I tell the truth in Christ, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. 
2 Corinthians 1.23, he says, I call God to witness against my soul. And in Galatians 1.20, Now concerning the things I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Now, I'll admit to being a bit of a skeptic when, when people say, but Pastor Jim, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm not lying. I start thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> what's going to happen next, <laughs> you know? And uh, let's be very, very careful about how we say those sort of things. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Well, why is he calling God to witness that he's telling the truth? Why? Because it's the truth that he's proclaiming. How important is the truth he's proclaiming? It's a matter of life and death. A matter of eternal life and eternal death. He's proclaiming the gospel. And he prayed for them. He prayed for them because he loved them. And he prayed for some of them that he didn't even know. You know, I just prayed for a friend of mine in the, the prayers that we had. A, a well-known Reformed Baptist pastor. Most of you don't know him. But I assure you, he's a man of God up there in years. You know, got, got a few guys left that are older than me preaching <laughs> and uh, still going on. He's one of them, you know. Well, you know, heartache comes. And, uh, you know, you're going to find, friends, the longer you live, the more heartache you're going to see. That's just the facts of the matter. The longer you live, the more heartache you're going to see. But where do you go with your heartache? Take it to the Lord and trust the Lord and look to him. He prayed for them. And he wanted to impart a spiritual gift to them. Let me read it again. Verses 10 and 11. Making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Evidently, for some reason, and we don't know what that reason was, um, he was not able to go to Rome. And the most likely thing is that the Holy Spirit just didn't allow it to take place. The Holy Spirit directed Paul in the places that he went, and sometimes opened doors and sometimes closed doors. And evidently this door had been closed some way, somehow, that we don't understand. But when we get to Romans 15, I'll just tell you, spoiler alert here, when we get to Romans 15, Paul had decided that he would go to Spain. Nothing wrong with making plans like that. Paul probably never made it to Spain. Some say he did. Maybe he did. We don't know. If he did, we don't have any scriptural proof that he did. But we do have scriptural proof that he wanted to go to Spain. Spain was way out there. But you could get there. The Mediterranean Sea goes to Spain. And that's what he would have done, taken the Mediterranean Sea and, and sailed himself to Spain. He had plans on that. And he says, Romans, I'm going to, by, by, by the will of God, I'm going to stop in Rome and then go to Spain to preach where the gospel has not been given to the barbarians. Okay? Because Paul cares about the barbarians. We'll talk about that in just a second here. So that's what he was going to do. That's what he planned to do. God had different plans. Paul made it to Rome, but he made it to Rome in chains. Okay, so that's what happened. But he did make it to Rome, and he did minister there for two years uh, under house arrest. Okay, he wanted to impart some spiritual gift, verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so you may be established. But it doesn't end there. That is, 
that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, what was this gift that he wanted to give him? And uh, was it such that they hadn't been gifted at all, that they didn't have any spiritual gifts? No, that's, that's not it at all. In fact, you can go to Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 4. In fact, I'll do that. Romans 12, 4. Let me just flip over there for a second. Romans 12, 4, Paul tells them, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them properly. And then he goes on and enumerates the spiritual gifts. And we'll talk about spiritual gifts when we get to Romans 12. But um, it wasn't that they didn't have spiritual gifts. He's not talking really about, I'm going to come to you, and now you're going to be gifted in ways that you've never been gifted before. No, he's going to come to them, and he was going to minister the word to them. And that ministering the word would build them up and equip them even more, and it's still happening today, by the way. Okay? That's, that's what happens when we preach the Word. It's what we do when we proclaim the Word. It builds us up, and it doesn't just build up you, it builds up the preacher, too. You heard, you heard Steve Gabriel talking today, and uh, he says what our guys almost always say when they give the communion meditations. You know, I, I'm going to give you what I've learned, but uh, oh my, I learned so much studying for this. Okay. All the guys almost always say that because it's almost always true, <laughs> I would assume. So, you know, it's a wonderful thing to do that. And the Word of God builds us up. And we are gifted. And we have individual gifts. And we should use our gifts. We should use them to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were already gifted. So he wasn't going to come and give them some magnificent, magnificent gift they didn't already have. He was going to help build them up in the gifts that they had. Paul isn't the one-man dispenser of, of godliness. I'm sorry to tell you, every once in a while, you see men set themselves up as the dispenser of godliness. And... Uh, here I am. I'm going to do great things for you. Okay, that's not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a humble man. And he tells that by, one, by the fact that it's not one-way communication in verse 12. He would benefit them. He certainly would. And they would benefit him. And, uh, you know, in your Christian life, just think with me, Christian friends. You've had those that have blessed your soul. That, that you know and remember some have gone to be with the Lord now, but uh, some are still with us. And then you've had some that uh, really have just moved away because here in the, the United States of America, we've got the ability to move away if we would so choose to do that. I hope you'd never do it without, without serious contemplation and looking to the Lord and seeking his face and, and seeking his wisdom. But uh, people move away. Uh, but... Often those that have even moved away or gone on before us. You know, they've left an indelible mark on us for good. And we've left an indelible mark on them for good. And that's the thing to remember. So no one person's the dispenser of godliness. Now the commission given to Paul. 
verses 13 through 15. Let me just read them, and then we'll enumerate some of those things. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, like I say, he doesn't tell us how, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And they say, well, how are you going to preach the gospel to us? I'm going to write it down so we'd have it. And not just them, but we would have it. And the church through the ages would have it. And of course, Romans has been abused of God through the ages uh, to bring revitalization uh, to churches and revitalization to the truth. Reformation, we could say. Well, verse 14, he says he's a debtor. What does he owe? What's the debt? Well, God gave him the gospel, but he didn't give him the gospel just to hold on to it himself. Gave him the gospel to proclaim it. Christ arrested him on the Damascus road, and uh, Paul preaches. Doesn't preach for merit's sake. Preaches because he sees himself owing a debt of gratitude to the Lord that saved him, and he desires to see others come to that saving knowledge through the preaching of the word. Paul was sent by God to minister to the Gentiles, even to the barbarians. But it was always his practice to go to the Jews first. The book of Acts tells us that. He always goes to the Jews first. And there's some very practical reasons why. He also um, realizes that he himself is a Jew. He realizes the scriptures were given to the Jews. And uh, because the scriptures speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament scriptures, it makes sense that he would go to those that know the Old Testament scriptures so that a foundation could be laid and he could prove to them from the Old Testament scriptures the very things that the things that they say they believe point to Jesus Christ the Lord. So Paul would take them from what they knew to what they needed to know from the scriptures, that Jesus Christ is Messiah. And most Jews did not believe. The majority of Jews rejected. Uh, many of the Jews became persecutors, trying to stop the Apostle Paul from proclaiming this new religion, which wasn't new at all. It was contained in the Old Testament, contained in the promises given to Israel, contained that uh, these promises, and if you read the Old Testament, and over and over and over again, it says something that it took the church a few years to understand themselves at the beginning, that the promises were to Israel, but when Messiah comes, it wouldn't just be Israel. It would be for the whole world. And the Old Testament is very clear about that. As you read devotionally through the Old Testament, I hope that you see that, especially as you start coming into the Psalms, especially as you start coming into the prophets, it becomes very, very clear that this is not just a Messiah for Israel to make Israel great. And that's what they thought, many of them. It wasn't just a Messiah that would make Israel great and make everybody bow to Israel. He was a Messiah that would cause everyone to bow to Messiah. Okay? And that's so important. But you know what you'd have once you've gone into the synagogues 
and the Lord has converted some people, some people that know their Old Testament scriptures well, some of them would have done that, then you now have the solid basis for a church. So he'd go and preach in the synagogue, and then he'd preach to the Gentiles. Many of the Gentiles, some of them being God-fearers, but some of them having absolutely no knowledge at all of the true God, having to start from the very bottom, take them from paganism to Christ. But that was his commission, commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, he says, you know, in verse 14. Did it both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Kind of interesting why Paul would say it that way, Greeks and barbarians. The Greeks were the better educated, they spoke Greek. The barbarians, well, they were looked down upon. They were a lower class. They hadn't attained to the greatness of the great Roman and Greek culture, you know. And uh, so they're barbarians. Why, why did the, what is that word used? Um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes the word foreigner is used instead of barbarian. But barbarian is really a good word, word, and we think it probably comes from the fact that the, the Greeks were maybe even making a little bit of fun of them or just kind of trying to explain what they are. It just sounds like the same bar, 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 you know, and they don't understand what they're saying. Barbarians, you know, babbling. Uh, in fact, there's scripture that actually talks that way. In, uh, I'll turn there, it's 1 Corinthians 14.11. You don't need to turn there. Let me just turn there myself. 1 Corinthians 14.11, I found this scripture as I was studying, interesting. It says, um, therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, he's talking about tongues, speaking tongues in the church. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he, shall, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. But you know what the Greek word is? Barbarian. <laughs> That's the Greek word. And for whatever reason, um, they translated it foreigner. But therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a barbarian to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So there's just uh, some scriptural proof of that. He couldn't be in Rome, according to verse 15, so he preaches the gospel by writing. And this takes us to the center of Paul's gospel, which we're going to go through so quickly here today. And uh, Really, I had to really think, do I want to preach uh, a message or two or three on verses 16 and 17? And I decided what I'll do, through the book of Romans, we'll keep coming back to this over and over again. Because here is the heart of the message right here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So let's just take it apart very quickly here. First of all, I'm not ashamed. Romans 6.21 uses the same word for ashamed. And it says in 6.21, um, What fruit did you have then in those things of which you now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That'll be next week's sermon, when we see the things that Paul's talking about, that uh, they could be ashamed of, but they need not be ashamed, because Christ has made them different. 
But, you know, uh, we're ashamed of the wrong things here in present-day America. But let's wait for next week, okay? Wait for next week. I, I want to, but I'm not going to. But he's not ashamed of the gospel. I have to say, I've, there have been times I've been ashamed of the gospel. There have been times that I could have spoken, could have said a word, and I didn't, you know. Peter was very much ashamed. And you know how that one turned out. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's times that we need to speak up. Admittedly, there's times that we do need to be quiet. Sometimes it's not appropriate. There's inappropriateness uh, to, to steal time from your employer when you should be working, instead trying to, to carry on large conversations about the Lord. Some jobs will let you do that, but uh, some jobs don't. And so we need to judge appropriateness, but that's not being ashamed. That's just being wise and doing the right thing of what God would call us to do. No, I'm not ashamed. And Paul urged Timothy to not be ashamed. I'll take you there. You don't need to turn there again. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Just listen to the word of God. Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Evidently, Timothy being a little bit timid, as we can tell from time to time, even though he's much more bold than probably any of us, being timid from time to time could be, te could be tempted to be ashamed. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, Paul says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Aren't you glad I didn't sing that? <laughs> it's hard to read it without singing it. Because <laughs> it's that good and a great hymn. I'm not ashamed. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And uh, to the Jew first. Why to the Jew first? The Old Testament was written to the Jew. We'll be talking about that in chapters 2 and 3. Why to the Jew first? Paul was writing to a, a culture that was based in many ways on honor and shame. You know, crucifying, why did they crucify Jesus in such an open public display? What was their motivation? Okay. Because they wanted to humiliate him. They wanted him to show him to be a criminal. They wanted him to show him to be worthless. Not, not worth even breathing the air. Which, by the way, he created that's what they were trying to do. Well, he's our great hero, isn't he? The crucifixion, he's our great hero. There's a lot more I could say about that, but I'm going to move on. There'll be more said next week. But, uh, you know, Satan, Satan and the forces of evil, uh, they're really not so clever they're very experienced. Okay. Well, they've learned a lot. And they know a lot. And they know the way that, that men and women think. 
you know? And, um, well, again, let me wait till next week. <laughs> okay. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation, because there is no other way of salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Acts 4.12, the apostles say, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And salvation comes through believing. And we'll say this so many times, that if it's not already burned in your head and heart, it will be burned there by God's grace. Salvation comes through faith not of works, lest any man should boast. And if we're going to boast, let's boast about our great God. Well, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God. You know, the Greek word righteousness occurs 34 times in 29 verses in this epistle. Righteousness. Now, there's different contexts in the way that it's used, and we'll need to be discerning as we read the context and find out what the context is. But now we're talking about the righteousness of God. God's righteousness in bestowing salvation upon those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ the Lord. And the emphasis is on God. In verses 16, 17, and 18, the emphasis is on God. The power of God in verse 16. The righteousness of God in verse 17. And the wrath of God in verse 18. But the righteousness of God is not a a new subject. It's on your outline. You can look at it there. Psalm 98, 2 and 3. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And Isaiah 51, 5. My righteousness draws near. My salvation is going out. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. It is righteous of God to provide salvation to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And from faith to faith. Just going word by word here. That's kind of a... I want you to think about it for a minute before I tell you what I think. From faith to faith, what does that mean? From faith to faith. You know, there are two kinds of faith. Some have said that. Some believe that. But uh, I don't think that's the case at all. Calvin uh, put it very well, I think. It's a faith that advances and grows. It's an idiom. It shouldn't be, seem strange to us. Uh, Isaiah talks about going from strength to strength. And uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about being transformed from glory to glory. And so it's talking about progression. True faith, giving by God, grows. And it grows because it's alive. Think about the parable of the sower. parable of the sower, a great example. The seed of the word is thrown on on dry, hard, rocky ground. Nothing comes of it. A lot of times that's what happens to our preaching. We preach and nothing apparently comes of it. In fact, uh, Paul goes so far as to say 
Uh, you can preach the word, reject the word, and you've increased your damnation. A savor of life to life and death to death. And that's another example of this uh, kind of idea of from faith to faith. The seed of the word falls on rocky ground, no fruit. The seed is sown on shallow ground. And it springs up quickly. But, you know, pulled a few weeds around here in the last couple of weeks. And one thing you find, it could be a big, tall weed. And you pull on it, little tiny root. Or you may have uh, a root that you can't get up. <laughs> you know? But a lot of times, a big old springing weed is the easiest one to get out. You know? And the Lord's talking about that. A great beginning. From all human appearances, uh, we have to believe that person's a Christian. They say they're a Christian. We have to believe. But there's no solid root. And it withers and dies. And what God plants does not wither and die. The, that's the thing to understand. That's what the parable of sower is about. There's no such thing as an unbelieving Christian. There's weak Christians. There's Christians that have weak faith. There's Christians that doubt. There's Christians that have momentary lapses, or even lapses that may last for a while. But there's no such thing as an unbelieving Christian. If you're unbelieving, you don't know the Lord. It's as simple as that. You need to repent. You need to believe. You need to trust. You need to look to Him. There have been people, I've, I've seen them in my ministry, they started out great. Uh, not, not so good today. Never knew the Lord. It's the truth. And then the seed that's sown on thorny ground. This one's a little different. But uh, this is the one that, uh, yeah, yeah, I, th I think I believe. And there seems to be growth. But there's the cares of the world. There's the deceitfulness of riches. There's other things that become more important than God and Jesus Christ the Lord. Other things that choke it out and it dies. Really, it's never alive. But it looked like it was alive. It looked like it was true. What matters the most to you? Do you care most about what you can obtain in this present life? Or do you care about Christ? The good soil. That's the heart changed by God. That's the one who believes. That's the person who now is a believer and brings forth fruit. Some more fruit than others. We, we aren't uh, fruit inspectors that try to say, okay, well, you got a little bit of fruit there. That's pretty good. But this guy's got more than you do. So that's, well, you talk about wickedness. But in, in God's providence, some do bear more fruit than others. It's just the truth of the matter. God is the one that decides. And like I say, friend, well, let me leave that thought for one, the very end here. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. This little verse taken from the writings of one of the more obscure prophets has changed the world. And, and notice how it's quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted here, of course. The just shall live by faith. It's quoted in Galatians 3.11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. If that doesn't destroy works salvation, I don't know what could. Okay, It just decimates the whole idea. 
And then Hebrews 10, 37 through 39 for our conclusion. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And that verse scares Christians. They're terrified of that. They say, oh, I've, I've drawn back before. And uh, I've sinned against the Lord. And uh, obviously, I, I must not know him. My God's soul has no pleasure in me. And sometimes we don't read far enough, you know. That's the case in, in the book of Hebrews with the warning passages. I'll, I'll tell you, every warning passage, you need to read a little farther. Read a little more. Find out the comfort of the gospel. Here it is. The just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We believe. Are you a believer? If you're not a believer, you don't know him. If you do believe, maybe you're going through a backsliding slump. Come back to him. Maybe you're going through some difficult trials that have taken your eyes off of Christ and put your eye on the trial. Come back to him and believe. He's a great God. He will, he will shepherd you. He will care for you. He will take you through the deepest trials. And if you're not going through trials right now, then look to Christ because you're going to be going through trials soon. Okay, That's just the way it is. That's the way life is. And um, there's a world of no pain, no sorrow, no trials. But it's not in this lifetime. Okay, That's just the way it is. Do you believe in the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in salvation by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. There it is on the wall for us. Good thing to be having in a church, right? Good thing to have there. That's what it says. Do you believe in him? Are you trusting in him alone? Let's look to Christ in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you that we can be called Christians, but... but in many ways, we do ourselves well to call ourselves believers because that's what we are. We're not trusting in ourselves. We're not trusting in our works. We're not trusting in what my hands have done, but we're trusting in you and you alone. So, Father, help us to do that, to never take our eyes off of Christ, never to look at our own achievements or lack thereof. For, Father, it's all of grace and it's all Christ. And we thank you for our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.